Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Chris Wolgar about his new book, The Culture of Food in England, 1200 to 1500. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I wonder... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with Chris Wolgar about his new book, The Culture of Food in England, 1200 to 1500. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself, Chris. Yes, surely. Uh, I guess you could describe me as a passionate historian. I've always had a an interest in the day-to-day life of the past. And I was fortunate enough to read archaeology and history at university. And from that, I went on to become an archivist. I trained as an archivist. And my first job, I found some medieval domestic accounts. And I had never seen the like of them before. And uh, I became fascinated with them. And this sort of led me into all sorts of things. And I did some research, being an archivist, on, on the form of these on these documents. But what I have become more and more interested in as well is what they tell us. And one of the things that they tell us is a great deal about day-to-day life and particularly about food. When I say household accounts, I don't mean probably households like yours or mine with three or four people in at at most, most of the time. Um, These medieval households are more like small villages on the move with 50 to 100 people, even more sometimes. They are really uh, indicative of a form of living. Uh, Household life is what the elite practice and those that can copy it, going right the way down really to households of clergymen in the countryside and probably the upper tiers of the peasantry. Uh, I guess I found these probably within about three months of starting my first job more years ago than I probably choose to remember, but we're looking (laughs) at uh, 30 plus and they've sort of been in my mind for a long, long time. And I guess I've probably looked at 90% of the ones that survive for for England now and some for the continent as well. So it's become a, a passion, if, if you like, and it's it's led me to all sorts of places. In the meantime, though, you have uh, written other works, you've uh, edited a journal. So this is not simply it, just... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 indeed. I mean, I, I had a career as an archivist and... Um, that led me uh, 
through records right up to the present day. Quite simply, most archives are 19th and 20th centuries. So uh, most archivists, to make their living, have to work with modern materials, but they all have their own fascination. So I've worked with completely uh, apropos of, of nothing almost, the papers of the first Duke of Wellington, the papers of Lord Mountbatten of Burma, all sorts of modern things as well, large collections of Jewish archives. But I've always been a medievalist as well. Most archivists of my generation were, quite simply because we had to have Latin in order to work with documents in, in this country. So most of us had come to it through through that route. And I guess about... Four years ago, I made a transition from an archival life to life as an academic historian. Um, I'm based at the University of Southampton, and I moved from looking after the university's special collections across to teaching history. But you're right, I have written about other things based uh, in part around this uh, notion of day-to-day -day life. I've written about the great household. Um, as you can see, that's intimately connected to the accounts. But I was also, I've also become interested in uh, other aspects, really. I think if you're going to understand how people live their daily lives, you need to understand how they perceive the world. So I set out some years ago to write a book about sensory perception and really to understand what it is that, that people do. And a lot of people have worked on, if you like, um, the theoretical side of cognition and how that works in the medieval period. But I was more interested in things from a pragmatic point of view. What, what, does it, what happens when somebody tastes something? And I came to a, a very different picture of perception, I think, to, to many people. Um, we live today in a world that's got a closed model of perception. If I touch the table in front of me, I can, I can feel it's hard, uh, it's smooth, it may be cold. But 600 years ago, my moral qualities would have passed to it. Its moral qualities would have passed to me or the moral qualities of the person who had sat there before. And the same is also true of the things that people eat and the qualities that pass that way. Uh, so this sort of segues into taking us back to food, really. And uh, I had written about diet and nutrition. I've edited volumes of that. Uh, I've worked with archaeologists and anthropologists. But I had uh, in mind another aspect, really, another approach for this book, that we're talking about today, the culture of food. And that is, what did food mean to people beyond, beyond the, the calories, if you like? What, what, lay behind, what lay behind it for most people? So I really set out to explore that. And as you say, it's been mulling around in my mind for, for quite a while. And I thought it was time I set things down on paper. <laughs> One of the things that comes out uh, early in your book is you talk about the uh, extent and the limit of the sources that you have. And as an archivist who is also writing as a historian, I was wondering if you could speak to, uh, before we get into the book itself, the sources that you had and the picture that they give and the picture that they don't give. One of the things in particular I'm fascinated by is you talk about these household accounts. 
And it, you talk also about how the majority of the archives uh, are, are 19th and 20th century. And that raises this very interesting question is how does something as uh, seemingly mundane as what are basically, you know, collections of receipts and so forth, how did that, how does that survive six, seven, eight hundred years to serve as a resource? Well, the, the answer is poorly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can draw a, a contrast quite quite easily. We probably only have about 500 of these medieval domestic accounts for England, aside from the royal household. And those are, are rather different as they're more about accounting for, for cash with the exchequer. Um, but we have, on the other hand, if you look at the records of farms, of manors in this country, we have tens of thousands of those accounts. And they have been preserved because they provide evidence of title to land in the sense that if you have a rent coming from something it's, and, and you can show that you have received it, you've likely got a good title to that property. Now, medieval domestic accounts are not like that. They get reused, they get cut up, they, we find them used in the binding of books, we find them used as cases for mirrors. Um, sometimes they survive as they are, but really it's, it's very unusual indeed. And although it may seem like 600, 700 years ago is a long, long time, there is actually in this country a surprising amount of documentation that survives. We have millions of land charters from the 12th, 13th, 14th century. Uh, so the contrast is really quite marked uh, in terms of, of, if you like, the totality of medieval records in this country. Uh, and it, They are exceptional, and that's why when I first found them, I thought, gosh, um, this is really quite unusual. I must find out more. Um, yeah, I, I think that they survive quite poorly across Europe as well for exactly the same reasons, uh, aside from some of the, um, I guess, some of the noble houses where there are clusters that do survive. But even then, we have nothing like what we once did. So the Dukes of Burgundy, for example, their domestic accounts survive um, largely at the, the centre of uh, their accounting um, business, as it were, in, in Lille. And when I was interested in this, um, I guess in the early 1980s, I wrote to the French departmental archives and said, what do you have? And the people in Lille said, well, actually, we have ten to 12,000 of these accounts. But what is striking is that if we had asked this question just before the French Revolution, they would have said, we have a quarter of a million. And what happened is that during the French Revolutionary Wars, these accounts were used as artillery cartridges. And uh, we, we can track them in small quantities all down the front French frontier at artillery training schools at places like Metz and Toul and whatever. So there's, a, there's another story about the preservation that goes on there. But we only have the tiniest fragment, really, of what these accounting records was once have constituted. They must have been an enormous bulk of material. But there was no real impetus for their, their preservation. 
And yet you're able to use these archives, what remains, and other sources to get at something that you don't often see, which is, as you describe, the mentality towards food. And I was wondering if you could explain what people in medieval England thought about food and how do they perceive it and, and, and how do they relate to it? I think one of the first things to appreciate about medieval England, late medieval England, is that it is a world in which Christianity dominates almost every aspect of daily life. And nowhere is that more true than with food. Food is right there with original sin, if you like. <laughs> Apple in the Garden of Eden, uh, the sins of gluttony, uh, the sins of lust, the carnality that goes with lust is inspired by eating flesh meat. That's carnis in, 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 in Latin. Um, people are very concerned about their, their diet in the sense of what makes up their, their food. And there is a pattern to consuming food that is driven by Christian belief. And that provides a pattern of abstaining from flesh meats on, certainly by about 1300, um, on three days of the week, certainly, uh, if you could, on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays, not just the fish on Fridays that we think about perhaps today, but on three days of the week, throughout Lent, potentially throughout Advent, uh, potentially on the eaves of the uh, great feasts of the apostles. In a great noble household, you would have abstained from meat on probably about 180 days of the year. And on those days, you would have eaten something else, most likely fish. Uh, you would not have been able to afford fish in many places in peasant society, certainly before the Black Death after the Black Death, perhaps, um, you, you would have eaten more. But one of the great things about medieval England is that very suddenly, round about, I guess, 1100, something like that, between 1000 and 1100, suddenly we find in the archaeological record vast quantities of fish bones, and we find also fish ponds being built around the countryside associated with great households, uh, with monasteries uh, and the like. But there is a, a notion of virtue that is attached to this pattern of diet. And people are expected to abstain, um, but there are exceptions. Um, for example, um, if you uh, were, have hard manual labour, you may eat meat more often. Uh, if you're a pregnant woman, you may dispense with the uh, the abstaining from, from meat. So it's shaded in various ways, yet people treat it as defining them, uh, themselves. And we have uh, one of the, I guess, not the best known saint from medieval England, uh, St Thomas Cantaloupe, who was Bishop of Hereford, dies in the, the 1280s. We have a large collection of miracles for him, perhaps the second largest group. And one of the things that goes on in proving his sanctity is that there are a series of um, 
I guess, depositions that are made before um, the examiners who've been sent out by the papacy. And we find peasants from the Herefordshire countryside being interviewed. And they're asked, uh, they've got a sort of questionnaire, and they're taken through it. And one of the questions is, and how do you know he was a virtuous person? And they say, well, he abstains from meat on Fridays, or his wife abstains on Fridays and Saturdays. So we get a, a, a glimpse of food being important in that sort of way. It's also used as a test of heresy uh, in this country. Um, there are a group of heretics known as the Lollards uh, from the late 14th century onwards, and they believed that it was lawful to eat all God's creatures at any time of the year. So if we have, as we do, heresy depositions from Norfolk from the 1420s and 1430s, we find neighbours popping into other people's kitchens towards the end of Lent and finding, finding pots boiling on the stove and they lift the lid and there inside is a, a, is a ham boiling away. Well, this is Lent. Uh, you should not be eating meat. So this is prima facie evidence that something is wrong and perhaps you know, this person is a heretic and this will be held against them. So it, it takes us into other interesting, interesting areas. One of the things you do in your book is you walk the reader through it's the, the sort of the stages of food preparation and consumption. And I was wondering if you could do something similar uh, for us here by uh, starting with how food was prepared, how it was cooked, what they had to cook it with, and who it was that did the cooking? Well, food is very interesting. It must involve most people in medieval England, um, probably most of the time, uh, either in terms of growing it, uh, storing it, uh, preparing it, cooking it, and of course, consuming it. So it's one of these things that touches all elements of society. And there are features of the way it is consumed, which help to connect people. And we've spoken about the fasting, the abstinence, and that's, that's, that's one of them. Before the Black Death, uh, 1348 to 1350, the diet in England is largely cereal-based. Cereals constitute the greatest part of pretty much everything that most people eat most of the time. There is very little meat around. Uh, there is a population that has probably grown um, pretty much by about 1300 to uh, its largest extent, almost beyond sustainable capacity. And we have large famines, great famines between 1315 and 17, which kill about 10% of the population. So people are very interested in food, in storing it, uh, and in preparing it. And what we, what we get are lots of things that emphasise, if you like, uh, examples in sermons that, that tell the peasantry that their diet, really, of bread and cereals and water and perhaps ale is actually a virtuous diet because they're not consuming all sorts of, I won't say exotic foodstuffs, but uh, stimulating foodstuffs. 
So we've got a, a culture of food that focuses around what the peasants can get uh, in their fields, uh, in, in their gardens. And yet there's there's such a contrast, apologize, uh, but there's such a contrast with the elite who have this very uh, relatively large space devoted to cooking. They have all these uh, various uh, implements for cooking. It, it, as I was reading it, it struck me as how relatable it is for us today. We have all sorts of specialty stores that offer you know, unique pots and pans for producing certain particular items. And you find the same thing in the Middle Ages in these elite households where they have specific pans for cooking fish and specific pans for certain sauces and so forth. Yes, they do. And they have meat in abundance as well. And after the Black Death, this is one of the things that the peasants aspire to. They aspire to a better diet. Um, and to a certain extent, they get it. And we see marginal land going out of cultivation. Peasants are able to eat better quality grains. They can eat wheat and bread as opposed to barley or rye bread. Um, they can eat meat. And they can begin to copy uh, the elite in all sorts of ways. And interestingly, you, you mentioned their sources um, and if you like, special foods. One of my arguments in this book is that uh, despite this, if you like, potential poverty of diet, um, people thought food was interesting. They were interested in it. They prepared it in all sorts of ways. Uh, there was the potential to do all sorts of interesting things. And I think it is largely peasant women who are involved um, much of the time in preparing most food in this way. They cultivate their own gardens, they've got all sorts of herbs and things that are there. I should explain that perhaps one of the key features of elite medieval diet, um, which is then copied or emulated across society, is that it's a, a food, uh, they, they're interested in foods that have sharp acidic sources that go with them, uh, or spices. Spices are precious beyond belief, certainly at least in 1200. By 1400, there are you know, much, much more uh, is available in, in this country. So anything that mimics uh, spices and sauces is highly sought after. And whereas in an elite household, you will find people using um, the most extraordinary um, collections of ingredients for which they will have paid vast sums of money. You can't do this in a peasant household, but you can easily make your own mustard or, or whatever it may be. And clearly peasant women focus on this. And we find lots of metaphors uh, in um, you know, proverbial sayings that, that are used to, to pinpoint this in, in people's lives. You know, they're interested in the source and spice of life, quite literally. <laughs> I mean, this, this, is, this is what is driving their, their, their taste. And one of the ways I got, got to this through the book was quite simply by looking at collections of, uh, of proverbs. And um, you know, they, they think, for example, um, one of the ways of, of putting spices on your food 
was just before it's served is to just sort of sprinkle it across it, uh, much as you might in an Italian restaurant have Parmesan cheese or something labelled onto, onto, onto your food. They would strew sugar or spices or onto it. But proverbs tell us that this is vanity because, you know, powder or powder spice is the most precious substance, but it could easily be blown away in the wind. So, you know, riches are not to be wasted. There's a proper social and divine purpose for them. And you shouldn't squander uh, this on sugar or spice. That's the sort of moral position that there is that, that, that goes with this. But peasants were very interested in, in creating uh, these things as well. So it's, it's one of the things that, that drives, um, if you like, um, taste. They're very interested in the use of sweeteners. Um, much of the time, certainly in the 13th century, this comes from honey. There's almost no sugar in the country around about 1200. And what there is comes really into to medicinal uh, concoctions, really. Um, but they see they see disadvantages too in, you know, proffered sweetness coming with a barb. So there are proverbs that say it's hard to lick honey from a thorn. That's that sort of thing. It suggests this, you know, there's the corrupting consequences that, that, that come with this. So the moralists see that. But it's also interesting because there's an economic um, background to this. Um, what is desperately rare in the 12th and 13th century. Things like pepper, extremely valuable, come quite quickly in the Middle Ages to be, you know, it's not worth a peppercorn. It's a complete trifle. And what has happened is that um, trade routes change and England is situated a small island out in the North Atlantic uh, the pepper has come all the way from Indonesia. Um, vastly, it's it's hugely precious, and it's transshipped in the Mediterranean. And what gets to this country in the first half of the 13th century comes by land, by pack horse across France from the Mediterranean. But towards the end of the 13th century, in the 1270s and the 1280s, the Genoese discover that they can row their galleys out of the end of the Mediterranean. It's very difficult to sail out of the end of the Mediterranean because the water sort of flows into it. But if you have a galley, you can row out. And they discover that they can row out and they come up to Flanders, particularly with the cloth trade, uh, to the south coast of England, indeed to Southampton, and what they're doing is largely bringing alum for the cloth, for the cloth trade, which has come from sub-Saharan Africa, in fact. But they bring spices with it. And these are hugely valuable. And these make these trips immensely profitable. And we suddenly get more and more spices appearing in this country, a wider range of things. And it means that more and more people can get access to these foodstuffs. And it characterises consumption. It changes the way that things happen. I don't know whether you're sitting having a cup of tea while you're listening to this, where you've got a cup and saucer. But 
sources in origin are what you put sauce in. And at this point in the medieval period, they are dishes about, I don't know, 20 centimetres, five inches across, um, perhaps with quite a wide lip, but also a, a depression where you would put your sauce and you would dip your bread in or, or whatever it is. And these come to table. Um, you are you're experiencing a, a meal that's very different in its structure to meals today, uh, much more, or Western meals today, much more like eating Indian cuisine, where you will have many dishes come at once in, in, in a course, and you will get your meat, and you will get a saucer to share with your neighbour, and the saucer will have the precious substance in. Now, we know at an elite level how this works because we have menus. Uh, we also have inventories of plate, uh, which tell us about the you know, the dishes that are there. But just occasionally, we see uh, people like the prior of Norwich Cathedral Priory uh, giving a feast for his uh, peasant tenantry at a place called Newton, and we can see that he orders wooden dishes but he also orders wooden saucers as well so the peasants are getting a taste of these elite foodstuffs and these spices are hugely valued so much so that they are a defining characteristic of elite cuisine when uh, a bishop of exeter dies in 1300, he leaves to his successors in the, the bishopric uh, a series of quite practical things as well. Um, not only his service books, uh, but some plate, but he also makes a point of leaving the spice mill that um, he has used so that his successors can continue to consume in a way that's fitting to their station. The uh, fascination with spices is one that uh, is we, we oftentimes associate with the Middle Ages. But you also talk about something else that was not often present in food preparation for uh, the peasantry that I must confess I had was never aware of before, and that was fats. In and this this plays into the why they use spices to flavor food because what they had to prepare food was also very different, not just the spices, but the very basics of, of, of what they were cooking it in. Yes, I think fats are quite an interesting case. I mean, fats, for most people, are, um, well, they are intimately connected to the animal world. And because before the Black Death, the number of animals in the countryside that are kept for meat, aside from pigs, uh, is actually very limited. The amount of animal fats that are available uh, is very constrained. So we don't see people um, cooking with fats uh, in the countryside. We don't see them even often using dairy uh, foods before the Black Death. I, I make a point about the Black Death because what it does is it kills people, but it doesn't kill animals. And after the Black Death, we have quite a dramatic change in the ratio between people and animals. So afterwards, 
um, it is possible for people to consume um, meat in much greater quantities. It is people, possible for people to use animal fats. Animal fats all of a sudden are available for lighting, for example, in ways that you just couldn't happen beforehand. Um, pigs, I think, are the exception. They, uh, there are no real secondary products from a, a pig other than, other than meat. Most peasants would have had, would have had them. And we have quite a nice collection of proverbs, really, about, um, I guess, associating successful peasant life with bacon, um, because they they are a sort of a, a key part, really, of um, of what goes on. There's a there's a nice expression about um, married life. I mean, successful um, married life. Um, is, is you know it's it's um, it, the expression to win the flitch, uh, the flitch is the side of bacon, um, directed to to, to newlyweds, quite literally meant to live for a year and a day in marital harmony, and we find vignettes, glimpses of domestic life going wrong, uh, and we find flitches of bacon are involved as well. So there is a nice, uh, well, quite a, an interesting tract in, in praise of virginity called um, Holy Maidenhood is, is what we know it in, in English. Mm. It's about a young housewife who might have chosen the virtuous course, lived a life of chastity and devotion and lived for her soul really and perhaps joined a nunnery but she hasn't done this and she is at home and you can imagine she's overwhelmed with domesticity and the tasks that are there the baby's screaming she's got a bake stone with a cereal cake burning on it the dog's hidden the calf is suckling she should be looking after the milk and the cat is up in the rafters at the flitch of bacon so domesticity has been turned upside down, the pot's boiling over, and her husband is chiding her. So we get a very nice view of, of how bacon and looking after these precious foodstuffs is um, a key part of her task, a key part of, of if you like, the peasant life as well, peasant mentalities. Now, you've talked about meat and you've also referenced uh, bread. I was wondering if we could focus a bit more upon the foods that were available to the various groups in society because you have a pretty comprehensive breakdown in your book of what they drank, what types of bread they ate, uh, what types of meat were commonplace. You even talk about uh, uh, the sorts of uh, game they might have had and, and, and what they would have cultivated in their own gardens. The beverages, it, for example, you, you have this very good discussion about water and ale. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and some of the other things they drank. Yes. Um, I think one of the things to bear in mind is that there are links to status and links to morality with almost everything in terms of food. Wine is there. It's certainly associated with the elite. Most people would not have drunk it. You might find it in, a, in an urban environment. Well, you point uh, out that that was a beverage that 
had to be imported, that there was virtually no domestic wine in England at this time. Indeed. There, there, there is a little, but it's, it's fractionally, it's, it's minute compared to what comes in from France. Um, the most common beverage, I suspect, most of the time that anybody can get at is water. And we can see from poetry and things, you know, beggars drinking from ditches, this sort of thing. We can see children as well. Uh, I've used coroner's rolls quite a lot because they give me these snippets of daily life when things go drastically wrong. Um, juries present plausible scenarios about what's, what's, what's happening. And one of the things that we can see is a child wants a drink on a hot day. It's August. What he does is to pick up a bowl and he goes to the stream opposite the house and, and drinks from it and disaster ensues. Um, so that's that's there, and I think for many people that's um, that is an important drink. But for those who can, and I think again many households will have been able to do this, brewing ale is really uh, a key. Uh, ale is a key drink. Um, ale is to be differentiated from beer. Beer is made with hops. It preserves much better. Ale is quite simply an infusion of the, the grain. It may ferment uh, as well. And we can see it again in peasant households where we have these disasters going on in the kitchen. Uh, we can see it being brewed in things, uh, I guess, from the size of modern casserole pots upwards, really. Things that hold half a gallon, that, that sort of thing. Up to much bigger pans of 20 or 30 gallons. Um, and... Again, we can see people preserving it, flavouring it, um, putting things into it to, to change the taste. People make uh, providers with special recipes for their ale. And you've got to try um, Mother So-and-So's ale because you, 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 can see, you can see these things going on. Again, it's women who are involved in this much of the time as well. And they market the surplus. We know a lot about uh, the trade in ale in the Middle Ages, quite simply from this marketable surplus that, that women uh, control. So that, that is also, I guess, it's the cereal base to diet as well. And this is how people get much of their calories. They get it from bread, they get it from ale. Uh, but as the Middle Ages go on, we see more and more meat coming in and, again, and indeed uh, more fish as, as well. So we get more diversification that's, that's, that's coming in. Well, you also talk in your book about the culture of eating and you describe eating within the elite households. You also have this very interesting chapter about eating and the guilds uh, in, this, in the towns. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the rituals of eating and the, the and how eating took place in ways that were different than we might imagine today. Yes, I think one of the key things about eating in the Middle Ages is um, almost like today is that people are keen to share their meals with other with others. Um, it's an expression of community. And feasting together, particularly at important times of the year, uh, a guild's principal feast, uh, the feast of its saint, um, 
the guild members will have been to church in the morning, will have heard mass and things, and afterwards there will then be a great feast. I took the example of a particular guild, uh, the Guild of Holy Cross at Stratford-upon-Avon, because we have a long run of accounts for their feast, and not much else, it has to be said. Um, it seems to have been the thing that the proctors of the guild spent much of their time doing during the year. Almost all their expenditure that we have in these accounts is, is spent on the guild feast. And it's a great communal event. We can see that the brethren of the guild, the brethren and sisters of the guild, spend their fourpence or sixpence to come along to it. And I guess somewhere between 100 and 180 of them sit down together to eat this, to eat this meal. And this is something that's replicated across the whole of the country. Uh, we have a return, series of returns made um, to the guilds, uh, to, to government of guild activity in the late 14th century. And they tell us about guild feasts happening in every village. So that's, that's clearly something that's, that's very important. It's also quite evident that the structure of these meals copies what happens in elite households. There will be the same types of servants. There will be people presiding at the meal. There will be a top table. We can see there's a top table because the best table linen is not going to be enough to cover all the tables that are there. We can see some special foods being used. Um, for example, we spoke briefly about game. Um, food that is hunted uh, has a special cachet. Uh, it's restricted to certain people to be able to do it. So um, venison at a feast is something that's really quite unusual. Even things like capons, for example, especially uh, castrated and fattened ch chickens, uh, are highly desirable and they will be reserved for the, the top table. Um, but the others might also get really quite large quantities of meat. And the Stratford feasts are quite remarkable. They take place in early July each year. And for many of those years, uh, everybody seems to get a small goose, what's described as a green goose. That's a young goose. So they'll get that and other portions of meat as well. Um, these meals take a long time, partly, I think, because of the amount of food that's there partly as well as we get through the later 14th and into the 15th century, because there's an emphasis on ceremony. And we can see this going, well, it becomes so dominant in elite levels that they must have taken hours to eat food, um, possibly as much as three or four hours uh, per meal in some of the really large establishments, especially if the king is present because the king eats before everybody else. And we have a few timetables as well that show the operation of these households and we can see separate setting, sittings so that the, the greater servants eat before the Lord and uh, his family and the lesser servants have to wait. Or if they're lucky, they get to eat something first before everybody else is served. So we, we get a a vision of people eating together. Um, even in peasant houses, we see people sitting down together. 
Uh, we see uh, at the level of the clergy and the countryside copying of these these rituals of service pantlers to carve the bread and this sort of thing. There is a, a coroner's case from a village about 20 miles from where I am, a place called St Maryborn near Andover in 1385, where you could see the vicar was going to sit down and enjoy his meal. And his servant had just come in, somebody called Brown John. Um, Brown John is a another word for a large cauldron that you get in a great household. But unfortunately, this man is, is laying the table and he's bringing in the knives for cutting the bread and he trips and falls. And you can imagine what happens. But it tells me that they were going to practice these same elite rituals of slicing the bread formally in front of the, the vicar or the rector of the parish. And we can see the tables being laid out in our own minds, the things that are, that are going to be there. And even if we look at peasant inventories, the upper levels of the peasantry, upper tiers of the peasantry, we find things like tablecloths. Uh, so you begin to get a, a hint of these things being copied at that, that sort of level. So it's one of these things that stretches across society. Uh, people expect to eat together, they expect to be served in particular ways, they expect meals to take place communally, they expect to share, they expect to give to the poor as well in terms of food arms. And this is really quite important as well through the, the Middle Ages. Uh, there is a large group of poor, again, certainly before the Black Death, less so after the Black Death when the economy has changed. But the moral economy changes as well. Um, before the Black Death, we even find groups, sometimes of 13 people, mimicking Christ's apostles, um, coming to table regularly. Some people almost have almshouses within their own establishments where people come and eat with them or in front of them. And these, these poor people also get special diets. So we find that they're given a virtuous diet. They will get fish virtually all the time, for example. They will get special loaves. When Christ fed the 5,000, um, some of the gospel versions tell us that the poor were fed with barley bread. So this is what the poor get they get barley loaves. We find the royal household bakes special loaves for the poor and they're made of barley bread. We find monasteries doing exactly the same in their almshouses, they're baking special bread. So they're really enacting, reenacting these, these miracles. When Henry III uh, feeds the poor, he can feed 5,000 at Westminster. And he has wall paintings as well, which, which, mimic, which mimic this as does Westminster Abbey. So these things are, um, they don't have the same sort of sense of time as we do. We, they're expecting potentially to feed Christ uh, there. So that's in their minds. And that, so that's, that, that's actually what I took from the book uh, at the end, which was just how much we take eating for granted. As much as we fetishize it, as we have cooking shows, we uh, oftentimes talk about fine eating. It's something that because it's so much uh, in the West, we have so much more availability of food. 
and it, where we have shops everywhere, you can easily walk in and, and get a snack or food. It, it, it's something that that while we can do that, we often we also just sort of make it almost an afterthought. And how it seems that for them, because it was such a uh, a, a more of a of a scarcity, uh, not not necessarily a scarcity, but more of a scarcity. They 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 put much more ritual and attention and respect into it. It's certainly a society in which people know hunger. Um, after about 1385, there is really no famine in England, unlike the continent, which does have serious famines. There are certainly periods of dearth when people don't go hungry. And the memory of hunger is deeply ingrained in the peasant mindset. There are lots of proverbs that, that say, you know, Hunger breaks stone and wall. This is something that is, is there in their minds. And feeding the poor is something they expect to do. But by the time we get to the later Middle Ages, they, and after the Black Death, they feel very much that people should be able to work for a living because the world has changed. And instead of giving food away indiscriminately, they focus it much more on the deserving poor, particularly their neighbours and family. So there is a another sense of community that you are responsible for the responsible for the poor of your own community. So yes, I think one of the great problems that we don't have before us is how to preserve food throughout the year so that you don't starve. And there are hungry times. It's very, very clear that by the time you get to May, June, um, people are wondering where the food is going to come from. Because until you start getting new crops coming in, you're dependent on what there is from last year's harvest. And we see things happening with prices, for example, in hard years. Those peasants that have, for example, been nurturing their, their pigs uh, for their supply of meat have to sell them so that they can buy corn to eat. And we see that happening any time sort of from Easter onwards. If it happens earlier, you get a fairly good idea of the, the scale of, of the crisis. So it is something that's on a on a knife edge. Occasionally you can see that there are, people think of big solutions to the problem. So some major cities like London, for example, um, have the option of importing corn from, say, the Baltic, where there may not be dearth. So people are thinking about food security in that sort of way. But the problem really comes when um, famine it's Northern Europe um, right the way across in 1315 to 17 because the crops fail across Northern Europe at that time and then there is just disaster at that stage. And the memories of this are there. Yes, they're, they're ever present. People do go without, no doubt about it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, surely. Um, I, I've gone off on another tack, but to do with daily life, but looking at it from, an, from another way, 
I'm moving on to people's stuff, if you like, people's possessions. And I'm interested in how they relate to their possessions, what they mean to them. And what I'm now doing is reading a lot of wills um, to understand what possessions people have and how they think about them. And I guess we have about 45,000 wills from medieval England. I'm not sure whether I shall get through all of them, but I'm going to have to get through them. Most of them, it has to be said, are very short. Uh, there'll, there'll only be a, a dozen lines. But they tell me things, particularly the wills of women, because they don't have so much landed property. Um, they tell me much more about their goods. So they will tell me about the colour of textiles. They will sometimes tell me about things like beauty. They will also tell me a lot about the objects themselves. We simply do not have most of these objects. We have precious little in the way of medieval textiles. Almost no medieval plate as well. So when people start describing these objects and the connotations that there are with them, uh, for example, I can see people creating heirlooms. Lawyers will tell you that you can't, you know, goods have no future. You can't create trusts and chattels and this, this sort of thing. But medieval people clearly believe that you can and that they're very interested in what happens to their goods after their, their death, how they can be used in commemoration, how they can be linked uh, to friends and relations. Quite a lot of these things have to do with food, I have to say. Um, <laughs> silver cups and things. Um, I can see heirlooms being created. Uh, for example, there's a woman called Rose Reichel who in 1418 bequeaths to each of her five children a silver cup and then sets out that it should descend from air to air of their body in perpetuity. In perpetuity. So these, these are things that are, are really quite interesting. I mean, one of the really great changes in people's lives between 1200 and, say, 1600 is in this quantity of possessions that people have. In about 1200, they have very, very little. By the time we get to about 1600, there is stuff everywhere. <laughs> and um, it's, it's watching this transition, watching ideas change about what possession means. Um, because if it's limited in some way, I mean, today, if I give some, if I give a, a, a chattel to somebody here, the expression is a gift of a chattel for an hour is a gift forever. But that is not how it works then. There is personal connection that's, that goes with things. So people keep these things in their families. And then these drinking cups, for example, you can see your family line is dying out. So you give it to a monastery to be used in its refectory so that you will be commemorated in prayers and the use of the cup at meal times. So there's, there's a great deal there that I, that I want to pursue. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I think it will keep me busy for a bit. <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day. You're very welcome.